Well, good morning, everyone. You look lovely today. Um, my name is Dana, and I'm one of the pastors here. And um, I'm going to start our message this morning a little bit differently. I want to tell you about a dream that I had a number of years ago. Um, it's not too often that I remember dreams after I wake up. I don't know about you, but this one was... It was a little bit disturbing. It kind of shook me, and I really remembered it. So um, in the dream, I was uh, on a bus with some of my friends, and we were, we were driving over top of a bridge, and the bridge was spanning a very powerful river. And we were up quite high as we drove across because the river was like down in the bottom of a fairly deep channel. And so as we crossed the bridge, I was looking down and I noticed that there were people um, coming up to the edges of the channel and jumping into the river and then being carried along in the current. And it's not like they were coming to swim, right? Like, that's not what it was for. They were, it was kind of strange. They were fully clothed. They were jumping in the, in the river and then being swept downstream until they were out of sight. And I found that profoundly disturbing <laughs> to watch people struggle to swim against the current and be swept, swept away. And I, you know, I tried to figure out what it meant. It's hard to know what dreams mean. I didn't know what it meant. And so um, I sort of set that aside for a while. And then one day, several months later, I was sitting with some colleagues at a table and we were studying the book of Ephesians, um, the same text that we're going to look at today. And we found ourselves um, reading this first section. I'll just read it for you right now. You are dead through the trespasses and sins in which you once lived, following the course of this world, following the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work among those who are disobedient. All of us once lived among them in the passions of our flesh, following the desires of flesh and senses, and we were by nature children of wrath like everyone else. So we started sharing around the table what we noticed about the text, and we found ourselves kind of working with this idea of following. What does it mean to follow all of those things? Like three times Paul says, you're following something, but none of it is something clear that you could sort of point to and say, that thing, I'm going to follow that thing. It's not like that. There are all these sort of forces that are at work that are directing us and moving us along, but we can't see them. kind of like the current in a river. And so all of a sudden, this dream popped into my head, and it cracked the scripture open for me in a way I would not thought about before, that this following that Paul is describing is kind of like the current in a river. So we're coming into the third week of our series in Ephesians. It's called A Life Worthy of the Calling. And today we're looking at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Uh, now, if you're joining us for the first time, you might notice that the people around you are using these little booklets. Everybody got their booklets? Picked them up? I like that. If you don't have a booklet, you can just raise your hand. There's no problem. Tom's going to come and, and hand them out. You might want to follow along with us in the scripture. Anybody still need a booklet? No? Yeah? Oh, okay, good. We got one. Okay, great. Uh, let's see. So we're going to use these booklets and follow along with the scripture. 
And if you happen to be listening on the podcast, we're using the NRSV translation, which might help as you're following. Now, because this is the third week, there are some things that I want us to just remember together. The letter to the Ephesians is written for any church congregation. It's different than some of the other letters that are written to a very specific demographic of people. This one's written more generally, and so we can understand it to be written for us as well. Also, Paul is always writing to a collective. He's always writing to a group of people. So even today, when you read the word you a number of times, this is never a singular you. It's always plural. It's always like Paul is saying y'all instead of you. Okay, so that's how we need to hear it. Now, we have already established a couple of things in our study um, from Ephesians. And one is that God has a cosmic plan. He has this plan that he has been, at, been enacting from the beginning of the world and will continue to enact until its end. And the plan is this, that he will gather up all things, reconcile all things to himself in Christ. Things in heaven and things on earth. The second thing we've established together is that when Paul says, through Christ, What he also means is through the church, because the church is the body of Christ. So the way that this plan is going to get enacted is through the church. And today we're picking up our study in chapter 2, which is page 3 in your booklet. And we're looking at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. It starts with this series of statements about following that always call to mind for me a river. So I want you to imagine this morning jumping into a river that looks fairly calm on the surface. Imagine jumping into a river and you turn over to float on your back or you climb into your pink flamingo floaty, right? You might even close your eyes and relax. It's peaceful, it's beautiful. But then when you open your eyes, you realize that you are much further downstream than you expected. Like it's hard to see the place you jumped in. The current is moving really fast and you have been you've been floating along even while you were laying perfectly still. And so you start swimming back upstream, right? And maybe you're even a great swimmer, and you are giving it all you've got. And it doesn't matter. Swimming as hard as you can, you're still being pulled downstream. I think that's the picture that Paul is painting for his readers, for us, in Ephesians 2. He's reminding them what it was like when they were dead through the trespasses and sins in which they once lived, which just means before they came to know Jesus. And he describes it as these forces that are moving them downstream, whether they want to go or not. So let's look at these forces together. First of all, in verse 2, he says, you're following the course of this world. That phrase, the course of this world, that's about the impact of a fallen world and the forces, momentum that that generates in a society. So, for instance, a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about how shame came into existence. We talked about there being 
two people in a garden and this serpent coming in and tricking them into believing that if they disobeyed God and ate some fruit they weren't supposed to eat, that they would be like God. And so, of course, they want to be like God, and they try that out. And they eat the fruit, and they find, to their dismay, instead of being like God, they are just people. And the gap that gets created between their expectation and the reality, between being like God and being people, the difference between that is what creates shame in them. None of us were there that day to make that choice for ourselves. I totally understand that. But I think we could agree that we feel the effects of shame in our lives every day. It's what is at the root of all our competition with one another, all our jealous feelings, all our gossip. It's what makes us terribly insecure about the way we look, I think shame is at the root of eating disorders and obsession with body image. It's what keeps us from being vulnerable and open with other people. We get, every day, we get carried along by shame without even realizing that's happening. I was working at a summer camp a number of years ago, and it was a a two-week-long camp just for girls. And I had never been to a camp that was just for girls, and I was a little bit skeptical about what that was going to be like. But over the first week of the camp, I watched this incredible thing happen. Girls who, like, in the first couple of days would only go to the beach in a big baggy T-shirt started running around in their bathing suits all afternoon, right? And girls who had been kind of flaunting their bodies a little bit started showing up for campfire in their track pants and baggy clothes, all grubby from the barn and their hair a mess. The, like, straightening, the straighteners and mascara wands started to gather dust in the bathroom. <laughs> and girls who would never have hung out together in high schools started sitting together at meals, laughing and joking, and they just, all this baggage came off. They just opened up like flowers, right? So thriving in this place where they were loved and accepted for who they were. It was beautiful. And then one afternoon, a work crew arrived on site to repair some old cabins. A group of about 12 boys from a local youth group. It was very nice of them to volunteer for that. And I walked into the quad before supper and saw all 12 of these boys playing basketball, pick up basketball on this little court that we had. And even though all week long that court had been full of girls, there was not one girl playing basketball that day. All the girls were lined up on the steps of the dining hall watching the boys. Their hair was done. Their clothes were clean. And they were solidly back in the groups that they would have been in in high school. Everybody was whispering, giggling, and just watching these boys play. It was literally one of the saddest things I've ever seen because that took about three hours to undo a week's worth of work. 
Now, I don't think that any of those girls saw the boys and thought, I have to change my whole persona to impress the boys. That's the only thing that matters. It's not really like that. It doesn't work that way. It's so much more subtle, right? You just start to feel more aware of what your hair looks like and when was the last time you showered. And actually, what do I look like compared to this girl next to me? You get carried along by beauty ideals and by comparison and by shame without even noticing how or when that happened. That's what it means to follow the course of the world. For some of us, it means waking up one day to realize we are working all the time. We don't have time for hobbies or relationships, but we have to keep working because we need to get some more money in the bank. Well, that is the idea that money equals power. And we follow that idea without ever questioning it. Or we might hear about someone else's pain and suffering. I mean, whether it's a whole country overseas or just our neighbors down the road. And we shake it off or we scroll past that article on Facebook thinking, that has nothing to do with me. Well, that's the power of individualism. It's this idea that tells us to only worry about ourselves. Look out for number one. It tells us that our decisions and lifestyles are disconnected from everyone else. It has no impact on the world around us. The truth is the world and our society here in Canada are built on ideas and concepts that we don't question very often, partly because we don't even see them. We don't notice. When you grew up with them, all around you and active, they're your normal. They become like the current in the river carrying you along. They define your reality, and you don't even know they're there. But that's not the only thing we're following. Paul also says in verse 2, we are following the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work among those who are disobedient. Now, who is that guy? Well, the ancients believed that the, what they called the lower heavens, which is like the space between the sky and the earth where we live, um, that that space was ruled by evil spiritual beings. Now, we don't talk about, we don't talk about Satan or demons or anything like that very much, and I don't want to focus on it today, but scripture does tell us that the same serpent who tricked the people in the garden is still at work tricking us today. And C.S. Lewis wrote this little book called The Screwtape Letters, which is It's quite a good read. The premise of the book is that this older, very experienced demon is writing letters of advice to his young nephew who's just starting out in his career. That's nice of him, right? What's so striking to me in the book is that their work is not to terrorize people or start the zombie apocalypse. That's not what they're doing. They're just supposed to keep people from believing in or trusting God, which is exactly what the serpent did in the garden. And so the advice to the young demon is to work at keeping the man he's responsible for distracted by various cares and concerns. It's 
keep them distracted. Or keep them suspicious of Jesus. Or better yet, keep them suspicious of hypocritical Christians so he won't even pay attention to Jesus at all. Try to keep him too busy for anything related to faith. Or try to keep him self-indulgent so that he'll stay away from church because he knows he deserves a rest. Maybe it's simplistic. Certainly there are more malicious ways that evil spiritual forces direct the world. But what rings true for me in that book is how often I intend to sit down and pray and I find my mind distracted by a hundred little details, right? The laundry, the dishes, what's on Facebook. Did my phone just ding? Or how often I'm like, I'm too suspicious of an author to pick up a book that someone recommends. Or how often, like, how hard it is for me to just buckle down and write the sermon that I know is both my job and so good for you. Why is that so hard? I think that's the impact of the ruler of the power of the air. And I end up following along in this current despite my best intentions. Finally, Paul says in verse 3, we are following the desires of flesh and senses. This is about our own physical, bodily longings. These aren't hard to figure out, right? Flesh and senses. This is anything we can see, hear, touch, taste, and smell. It's the stuff we crave. Everything from chocolate and ice cream to drugs and alcohol to sex. I was talking to a friend once um, when he had just come back from being overseas for a month, and he'd been in a country where uh, women culturally dressed much more modestly than we do here. And so he was reflecting on how much simpler that was. You know, he said, I could not believe how much more relaxed I was all the time because I didn't have to worry about what I was going to see. You know, he said, now I'm back on campus in Canada and every shirt is see-through. When did that happen? So I'm looking at bras all the time or I'm spending all my time trying not to look at bras. Now, I just want to be, like, super clear. I am not talking about women's clothing being responsible for leading men into sin. I do not buy that, and my friend doesn't either, by the way. He was reflecting on his own senses, what was going on for him, and how easily he was carried along by desire. When he could not see bras all the time, it was easier. And now that all the shirts were see-through, because it was a college campus and there was a season where that was the fashion, uh, that was much, much harder. Lust is an enormous current in that river. Huge. I mean, why is sex used to sell everything from vitamins to cars to power tools? Because it works. We have a really hard time resisting that. Um, There were some researchers who were trying to study the effects of pornography on men's brains. And so they were trying to compare the brains of young men who were addicted to pornography and to the brains of young men who were not. But they ran into a problem when they were trying to find subjects on college campuses. 
They couldn't find anyone to be in the control groups. There just literally were no men on the campuses who were not regularly using pornography, so they couldn't find anyone to be in that group. They had to redesign their study and find a group who were willing to detox from pornography for six months and kind of reset their brain chemistry before they could carry on with the comparison. That's crazy. Boys are usually exposed to pornography around the age of six, and girls it's only a couple of years later. And often they're addicted by the time they're 12. And it has such a profound effect on their emotional and psychological development that by the time they're in their 20s, young men self-report that they don't even talk to women. They don't want to and they don't feel able to engage in meaningful relationships because their brains have literally been rewired by what they're seeing on the screen. Our senses just carry us along in other ways too, right? It's not just lust. They keep us addicted to sugar when we know that makes us vulnerable to disease. They keep us shopping, spending, running up increasingly high levels of household debt because we cannot resist buying something when we see something that we want. So, we're following the course of this world, carried along by ideals about beauty and money and power. We're following the ruler of the power of the air, kept distracted by our toys, and and suspicious of God, and we're following the desires of our flesh and senses, caught up in lust, addiction, and rampant consumerism. And I know that there's no actual reference in this scripture to a river, but that picture is so powerful to me. Paul is telling his readers that they lived this way, that we all lived this way, carried along in a riptide of forces that we're mostly unaware of, captive to things we can't even see. And then in verse 4, Paul switches gears with two little words, but God. See that in verse 4? But is a powerful, game-changing word. You are racing along in the current of the river, powerless to change it or get out, but God. So let's read verses 4 through 10 together. But God, who is rich in mercy, out of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead through our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the ages to come, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are what he has made us, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand to be our way of life. So we're in the river, dead in the river, and God steps in. It's like he reaches down and grabs the back of our shirts and just plucks us up out of that thing. 
just picks us up, brings us all the way up to be seated with Christ in the heavenly places. And let's notice a couple of things about that process. First of all, verse 4 tells us that God loves us with a great love. He loved us even when we were dead through our trespasses and made us alive in Christ. That's an incredible sentence. Even when we're floating down that river at our worst moment when we are dead in our sin, God loves us. He's not dependent on us learning to swim upstream. He's not waiting for you to clean up your act. He just loves us exactly where we are. So much that he comes in to pluck us out. Second, God does all the action in this, in this bit. Do you notice that? Every action is God. God made us alive. God raised us up. God seated us with Christ. We aren't really doing anything. We're just stuck in the river floating. And God does everything for us. And third, what he does is the exact same thing he did with Christ. When he raised Jesus up from the dead in Ephesians uh, chapter 1, verse 20, which is what we read last week, Paul says that God You'll remember my artwork. I know you're getting excited already as I open my marker. You'll remember that that God raised Christ up from the dead and he seats him up here in the heavenly places. And he puts all things under his feet, all rule and authority and power and dominion, every name that is named. He puts all that stuff, which I do like this, okay, under his feet, Right, And then, today, in this, in this scripture, we hear that he's doing the exact same thing with us. He's plucking us out of that river, raising us up, seating us with Christ in the heavenly places. Christ and the church in the heavenly places. And I want to suggest to you that this river that we're stuck in, the course of the world, the ruler of the power of the air, our flesh and, and senses and desires, that all of that stuff is right down here with everything else under the feet of Christ. Even though you feel like you're stuck, it is under the authority of Jesus. Okay, now you might be asking, Dana, how come I still feel like I'm in the river if this scripture tells me I'm seated in the heavenly places with Jesus? That is a great question, everyone. Nice job. I think there's probably a real word for this concept. I don't know what it is. I just call it the now and not yet. Now and not yet is a way of naming that there are things that, are, that have begun but have not come to completion yet. This week I read somebody who described it this way. He said, the future will disclose the grace and salvation that is now only known by faith. Right, so it's like there are two timelines. The first timeline starts at creation and goes until the end of the world, when the world as we know it comes to an end. That's what the lightning bolt is for. Okay, and the second timeline starts at the resurrection of Jesus and goes for all eternity, but I just put some clouds. Okay. 
So there's two timelines, and they overlap with each other. And this space in the middle between the resurrection and the end of this world, that is the space that, is, that we live in now, that we call the now and not yet. Things that were begun and set in motion with the resurrection, things like an end to poverty or fully restored bodies, no more isolation and loneliness, racial and ethnic reconciliation, all the things that Jesus promised us were ours, that he promised his kingdom was bringing. Those things are set in motion at his resurrection, but they don't come to completion until he comes again and makes a new heaven and new earth. And so this, us being seated in the heavenly places with Jesus, this is one of those things. The worldview that Paul is painted, that reality is not yet complete. But it is still true now because it's true of Jesus, because Jesus is already fully here in the heavenly places. And he is the one who determines our future because we are his body. So both now and not yet, we are plucked out of the river, made alive together with Jesus, raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places so that. Remember last week we talked about the importance of the words so that, that they pop off the page and help us know you're about to find out why. Why did God make us alive when we were dead in our trespasses? Why did he raise us up and seat us with Jesus? Well, let's look at verse 7 together. So that in the ages to come, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. I love this verse. See, of course God raised us up because he loved us. That's in verse 4. But he also did it because he's trying to prove something. He wants to be able to show off. He is trying to show off his grace, his grace which is so much we can't even measure. And he's going to show it off through his kindness to us in the act of raising us up. Isn't that crazy? That means that our salvation, our rescue from the river, is for two things, at least two things. It's for us, of course, so that we can be rescued. But it's not only for us. It's also for demonstrating the incredible grace of God to the world. We are rescued so that God can prove who he is through the church. Remember God has this ultimate plan to reconcile all things to himself and how that is going to happen through Christ and through the church. That's this. We are rescued out of the river and seated with Christ in the heavenly places so that through all the ages, God would be able to demonstrate through us, through his church, the riches of his grace and bring to completion his plan to reconcile all things. Let me make two more comments about the scripture. First of all, according to Paul, y'all didn't earn any of this. If we look through this text, we see in verse 4 the word mercy 
in verse 5, by grace. In verse 7, his grace. Verse 8, by grace. And just in case you're not sure exactly what the word grace means exactly, Paul gets even clearer. He says in verse 8, it is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. It is not the result of works. Paul is saying, you did not effect your own salvation. You could not have brought this to pass by your own works, no matter how hard you tried. It's not because of your works. It's not because of how bad you are, and it's not because of how good you are. It is only because of God's grace, his kindness, his generosity, and his power. God did this. Second, verse 10 is telling us two very important things about ourselves in this worldview. It's telling us our identity and our destiny. Our identity is this. We are what he has made us. And that takes into account everything that we've been studying so far, right? We are rescued. We are alive. We are the body of Christ. We are adopted. We are daughters and sons of the king. We are holy and blameless. We are marked with the Holy Spirit. We are God's own people. Some of those are from earlier in the letter. That's all part of who God made us. That's our identity. And our destiny is this. This is from verse 10. We are created for good works which God prepared beforehand to be our way of life. Now that doesn't mean that everything is predetermined, right? That word beforehand gets complicated. doesn't mean it's all predetermined and you don't have any choice. That's not what he's saying. In fact, in the coming weeks in the letter, Paul goes to great lengths to help us understand it matters how we live and what we choose. Our works don't save us. That's true. But how we live is extremely important. There is good work for us to do. See, If God is at work to reconcile all things to himself, and we are Christ's body, then that work of reconciliation, that's our work, our good work, our destiny. It's what we were created for, and it's what we were saved for, plucked out of the river for. My friends. We have been confused for a long time. Maybe we forgot this. More likely, it was never communicated clearly to us. We know a gospel of personal salvation, period. But that is a mistake. The gospel is personal salvation for the sake of reconciling the world to God. The gospel is that Jesus came into the world, met you and loved you and died for you so that, so that you would be empowered, so that you would know him in such a way that you could help others know him. We are never called to receive something from God and just sit on it. It is always for a purpose. God saved us so that we would be a living demonstration and proof of his grace through the ages for all time. And that's not demanding. It's not a bait and switch. It's a wildly 
generous invitation to participate in God's cosmic plan to reconcile all things and all people to himself. It's not an onerous extra duty to share our faith with someone else or to invite others to follow God or to make peace with another believer where there's brokenness or to disciple someone and help them grow. Those are not add-ons or afterthoughts. That's what we were created for, what we were saved for. So, what are we going to do with all of this? This week, I want you to try to become aware of the current in the river. I want you to learn how to see that current. Talk with the people in your life. Ask them, what things are moving us along? What things are forcing my hand and I don't even know? In fact, you might want to use the prayer from last week. Last week, we were praying for wisdom and revelation. Well, this is an excellent thing to pray for revelation about since you can't see it yourself. Ask God about this. And when he tells you, write those things down. If you drew this worldview at home last week, then I want to encourage you to add the river in underneath Jesus' feet this week and write those things in the river. Try to get clear. What are one or two things that are carrying you along in the current? And once you've named the current, pray about it. Like actually stop and pray this worldview into reality. You could pray like this, God, I see that fear is motivating me today. I see that I'm being carried along by lust. But in Ephesians, you say that you intervened in my life. You plucked me out of the river of fear and lust and seated me with Jesus and made me alive with him. And so I set fear and lust down. I lay them down under your feet where they belong, and I ask you to break their power in my life so that I can live into the good works that you prepared for me. That's what it means to pray the scriptures. You are praying your own life into line with the worldview of God. And you are going to find so much power when you start to pray that way. Finally this week, would you consider sharing your experience with Jesus, with someone who might not yet be reconciled to God. I know tomorrow, Monday, everyone's going to ask you, what would you do on the weekend? Well, think about sharing something that stood out to you from the service today. And if they seem interested, maybe you want to listen to the sermon together. I mean, it's going to be a little bit weird because they're going to hear this part where I tell you to do that. But, you know, that's okay. Maybe they want to come to the picnic with you next week. But help them meet Jesus. Let's live into our calling to help people become reconciled to God. All right. That's it for this week. (laughs) Um, And so if you would stand, uh, if you can, I'd like to bless you as you go. People of God, go forth from this place empowered by the Holy Spirit to fulfill your high calling as servants and witnesses of Jesus Christ. And now may the risen Christ go with you, behind you to support you, beside you to befriend you, within you to empower you, and in front of you to show you the way.
Amen.